As we come to John chapter 18, this morning we're going to pick it up at verse 19. And at verse 19, we come to this section where Peter and John have followed Jesus after he was arrested at the Garden of Gethsemane. They followed from a safe distance so that they wouldn't be caught, so to speak. And they came to the house of the high priest, Annas. Now, Annas wasn't officially the high priest. His son-in-law, Caiaphas, officially held the title. But he was the power behind the throne. So in a few places, the scripture calls him the high priest. Because functionally, effectively, he was. Before Jesus went on to any of his subsequent appearances before officials... He was going to go on trial before Annas for an interrogation, an examination. And Jesus is in some part of the house, and from a distance, perhaps from a courtyard, we don't know the architecture exactly, Peter and John can see him from a distance. We know this because the Gospel of Luke tells us that Jesus could see them as well, or see Peter specifically. So let's pick it up here now. Put it in your mind, Jesus stands before this man of great power and prestige in ancient Israel, this man, Annas, verse 19. The high priest then asked Jesus about his disciples and his doctrine. Jesus answered him, I spoke openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where the Jews always meet, and in secret I have said nothing. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. Indeed, they know what I said. As Jesus suffers this interrogation from the high priest Annas, one of his concerns is to gently yet clearly reveal to Annas the injustice of the proceedings. They said, do you understand what's going on with Jesus as he stands before Annas? Annas questions him, and look at his question there in verse 19. The high priest then also asked Jesus about his disciples and his doctrine. Jesus, first of all, I want to know, who are your associates? Rat them out to me right now. Secondly, incriminate yourself by telling me something juicy. Now, I know that in some places and sometimes, in some nations, some police states in this world, that's the custom. You round up a man for questioning. You throw him in the thing. The first thing you want to know, who are your associates? So that you can put your tentacles around them as well. The second thing you want to know is, tell me what bad thing you've done. You make the person testify against himself. Ladies and gentlemen, that's a common thing in totalitarian states around our world. But that's not how the sophisticated system of Jewish justice was set up. In a proper system of justice, as was true in the Jewish world of the first century... You had to have outside witnesses bring evidence against the accused. You couldn't just stand a man in front of a judge and say, okay, tell us what you're guilty of. Jesus says, bring the evidence. You want to know what I taught? I taught publicly. Everybody heard me. It's not like I got one secret doctrine for my inner circle and another one that I spread out to her. I teach the same thing everywhere. You bring the witnesses first, Annas. Now, Jesus said this very respectfully, but he said it pointedly. And it was a challenge to the illegality of the proceedings that Jesus suffered under. And then verse 22, something so monumental happens that in my mind, it's a game changer for everything. Can you picture Peter, especially, 
looking off to the distance, seeing Annas here, uh, question Jesus. Jesus replies, and then verse 22. And when he had said these things, one of the officers who stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, do you answer the high priest like that? Jesus answered him, if I've spoken evil, bear witness of the evil, but if well, why do you strike me? Then Annas had him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest, sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. When Jesus responded to Annas' question, basically exposing the illegality of it all, the man standing next to Jesus, an anonymous officer, some policeman of the, uh, of the temple police, He blindsided Jesus with what it says was a blow from the palm. It wasn't like a little slap, you know, like, oh, you offend me, sir. It wasn't like one of those dainty little slaps. It was a punch with the palm of the hand. Now, I imagine that from a distance, that when Peter saw this, he started sweating and a chill overwhelmed his body. Peter and John had followed this man for three plus years. They had seen him in all kinds of trouble. Was it any strange thing for Jesus to face opposition? He's had it all throughout the gospel of John. He's had enemies. He's had opposition. He's had people coming across against him all the time. Several times they've had people trying to take his life. Never did he suffer a punch like this. Never did these men see their rabbi and messiah, his head jerk back from a punch. Never did they see blood begin to trickle from his mouth. And that sort of concussion-like confusion that comes from taking a sucker punch. Right then, Peter knew, John knew, this is real. Maybe before this, they thought, you know what? We've seen Jesus get out of a lot of scrapes before. And this one's bad. Oh, yeah, we'll admit. Never has he been questioned like this in a midnight trial before that. Oh, yeah, this one's bad. But we've seen Jesus get out of a lot of stuff before. With this, the alarm bells go off. This is different than anything we have ever seen before. Now, Jesus answered back, verse 23, if I've spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why do you strike me? Annas had nothing to reply to him. He could reply nothing. He couldn't say, well, 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 we hit you because there was no adequate answer. There was no justification for it. So what does he do? Again, if I'm making a movie of this, I put a sick little smile on Annas' face. And then he sends him away bound to Caiaphas. Notice this. He was bound when he came from the Garden of Gethsemane. He remains bound now as he goes from the home of Annas to the home of Caiaphas. Which, by the way, we don't know the geography exactly. It could have been across town. It could have been next door. We don't know. But Jesus is tightly confined. This is God in handcuffs. This is God submitting to it all. He didn't have to be, but he did it for our sake. Now, while all this is happening, and especially keep this vivid image of Peter seeing Jesus punched in the face, verse 25. Now, Simon Peter stood and warmed himself. Therefore, they said to him, you are not also one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of him whose ear Peter cut off. 
said, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter then denied again, and immediately a rooster crowed. There's Peter watching from a distance, nervously warming himself over the fire, standing around the fire with a collection of people who were in the the priest's household, who were just there, hangers on. There they are, they're in the courtyard. Peter's kind of at the side of his eye, looking at as much as he can, not trying to take too much interest because he doesn't want to declare too much interest in what's going on with this man Jesus. But he's just trying to stay connected to it from afar. He sees Jesus take this punch And even as that happened, the question comes, verse 25, you're not also one of his disciples, are you? Now the also there is interesting. It probably indicates that John was already known to that group as one of Jesus' disciples. Yeah, we know John. Yeah, yeah, he's John. He's one of his. You too, right? You're also one of them. What does Peter say? No, not me. Never knew the guy. He's denying his association with Jesus. Friends, I I just want you to understand something. When Peter denied Jesus, do you understand what happened there? Most of the time, when we think of denying Jesus, we think of it as denying some theological truth about Jesus. Denying that Jesus is the Son of God. Denying that Jesus is sinless and holy. Denying that Jesus rose from the dead. And there's all sorts of theological truths that somebody can deny about Jesus. But that's not what was going on with Peter. Peter didn't deny a theological truth about Jesus. He denied his association with Jesus. I'm not connected to that guy at all. And really, most of the time when we deny Jesus, isn't that what it comes down to? Yeah, I don't want you to deny theological truth about Jesus. I want you to know who he is. I want you to know why he came. I want you to grab all of that, and I want you to believe it with all your heart. But did you know that you can believe all the truth about Jesus and still deny your association with him? I'll tell you when I am tempted to deny my association with Jesus. When some weird Christian, and I say that in all love, (laughs) when some weird Christian finds prominence in the media, usually it's just for a season, and sometimes it's accurately presented, sometimes not, but when some weird Christian finds prominence in the media, and it's like, oh yeah, you're one of those, You know, sometimes I just have to come to the place where for me I say, the family of the followers of Jesus Christ, it's a great big family and we've got some weirdos in it. (laughs) But it's my family. I belong to Jesus. I am one of his. We must take pains that if you identify yourself as a follower of Jesus Christ, that you do not deny him when you have the opportunity to make public your association with him. That was the struggle with Peter at this particular time. And not only deny him once, we saw that last week, twice here in verse 25, and then the third time in verse 27, Peter then denied again. The Gospel of Matthew says that the third time he denied him, he did it with cursing and swearing. Then people would know he wasn't associated with Jesus because of the foul words coming out of his mouth. Ladies and gentlemen, 
how this must have pierced Peter's heart. You have Peter, one of the 12 disciples of Jesus, who at the critical moment, despite all of his boasting that he would follow Jesus no matter what, he denies him at the critical I don't know the guy. I'm not associated with him at all. You have Judas, another one of the followers of Jesus, one of the 12, who at the critical moment denies Jesus and even turns on him. Both of them, in their own way, turn their back on Jesus. Yet they both had very different destinies. We'll talk more about that later. I'm just planting a seed for a later thing to examine. Now verse 28. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the praetorium, and it was early morning, but they themselves did not go into the praetorium, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. So they take him from Annas to Caiaphas. Now John is greatly abbreviating the account here, mostly because John was written after the other three Gospels, and he's talking about here, he's passing over things that the other three Gospels deal with in great detail. It's like, you already read that in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So I'm not going to dwell upon it. Jesus went from Annas to Caiaphas, and basically had two trials before Caiaphas. One of them, a hasty nighttime trial, which was illegal, and then a hastily gathered meeting of the Sanhedrin right at daybreak or just before daybreak to put kind of a stamp of legitimacy upon that false trial. So he had one trial before Annas, and basically two trials before Caiaphas. Then they sent him bound to Pilate. And because Uh, John doesn't deal much with the trials before Caiaphas. Neither will we. We come right now to verse 29. There they are, coming to the place where the Roman governor stayed, Pontius Pilate. They will not go in to the courtyard of his house. Why? Because Passover is there and they don't want to ceremonially defile themselves. By the way, John just presents us with this sort of tragic irony. These religious leaders were so scrupulous about their purity, they won't set foot into the home of a Gentile man because they have to remain pure during Passover season. Yet at the same time, they're railroading the spotless son of God to a murder trial. Do you see how one can strain at a gnat and swallow a camel? Be obsessed with a small little matter of religious observance while at the same time you're sinning in a totally corrupt, terrible way? Anyway, going on now to verse 29. Pilate then went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? I love it. Pilate, totally Roman. Let's get down to business. What are we dealing with here? What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered and said to him, If he were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. Then Pilate said to them, You take him and judge him according to your law. Therefore the Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spoke, signifying by what death he would die. Ladies and gentlemen, one of the wonderful things I find about the Bible is that it is inexhaustible. And I've given a lot of my life to studying the Bible. I always discover new and wonderful things. This is what I've learned studying through the gospel of John this time is that this was not the first time Pilate heard of Jesus and his case. Do you know how we know that? 
Because John told us, and we studied this last week, that when Jesus was arrested at the Garden of Gethsemane, there was a detachment of Roman soldiers, a large detachment of Roman soldiers, perhaps numbering in the hundreds, that was sent forth from the fortress Antonia. We know this because of some of the subtleties of the ancient language where he says, the detachment of troops, Roman troops. Now, there's no way that could happen without having Pontius Pilate's stamp of approval on it. It's as if Pontius Pilate's saying this, all right, I granted you the soldiers last night to arrest this guy, so what do we got here? You know, I took your word for it that this guy was dangerous. I don't want any trouble during Passover time. So I gave you the soldiers without knowing the facts, but now you bring this man to me. What's up with this? Spell it out for me. And what do they say? They don't give him any answer. Pilate said, what accusation to bring against this man? And in verse 30, they simply say, if he were not an evildoer, we not have delivered him up to you. (laughs) Pilate, we're not bringing this man to you for you to judge. We've already judged him. We just want you to approve our decision. That's the whole dynamic of what's going on here. Well, Pilate says there in verse 31, well, then you take him in judgment according to your own law. (laughs) You got this all figured out? You don't need me? I'm a judge. I'm not just your executioner. You don't want me to judge us? Then fine. Deal with it yourselves. But notice their response. They say, verse 31, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. No, Pilate, according to the rules that you, the Roman occupiers, have set up, we're not supposed to try people for capital crimes. We're not supposed to wield the power of death. Therefore, because we want this man dead, it's on your shoulders. And John, seeing the bigger picture, understands in verse 32, this was that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled. What does he mean by that? Jesus said that he would be crucified. Ladies and gentlemen, crucifixion was not a Jewish mode of execution. Crucifixion was thoroughly Roman. If the Jews executed somebody... They stoned them to death. But Jesus knew he wasn't going to be stoned to death, even though his biggest problem was with the religious leaders in his day. He knew he would be crucified by the Romans. Well, how could it happen that a Jewish Messiah would get crucified by the Romans? This is how it happened. They referred him over to Pilate. Now, verse 33. Then Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus, and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, are you speaking for yourself about this or did others tell you this concerning me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? Oh, friends, can you picture this scene in your mind? It says that Pilate came back out of the praetorium. Now again, John is concentrating the account here I hope I don't confuse anybody with this, but just essentially as there were three trials before the Jewish officials, one before Annas and two before Caiaphas, so there were three trials before Gentile officials because Jesus first came to Pilate and Pilate, seeing the predicament at all, he wanted to wash his hands of it, so he sent Jesus over to Herod because Herod ruled over the region of Galilee, which wasn't strictly within Pilate's uh, uh, supervision. Well, good, I'll just pawn him off on Herod. 
Jesus went to Herod. Herod questioned him. Jesus didn't say a word to him. Herod sent him back to Pilate. When we come to verse 33, now we're back to Pontius Pilate for the second appearance before Pilate. I just find it interesting. God arranged it to where essentially there would be three trials before the Jewish officials, three trials before the Gentile officials. God wanted it sure that both Jew and Gentile together were responsible for sending Jesus to the cross. Now at the second appearance, Pilate isn't happy to see Jesus back. He thought it was a problem that he could get rid of by sending him to Herod. But now he comes back. Pilate's going to get directly to the point. Verse 33 Are you the king of the Jews? Let's cut to the chase, Jesus of Nazareth. Are you this king of the Jews that I'm supposed to be concerned about? I don't really know. Now, there's a phrasing in the original language. Again, I I always feel like I have to point out, maybe I don't have to point this out all the time, but my own insecurities make me do this. I'm not an expert in the original languages of the Bible. I just know how to read the people who are. And and what the experts say about this is that the phrasing of Pilate is specific. It's like, are you the king of the Jews? The emphasis is on you. You? Look at you bound. You're bleeding from the face. There's spit dried on your face from the abuse you suffered from the religious leaders. You're abandoned by your disciples. You've been turned over by your own people. You? Are you the king of the Jews? Now notice what Jesus' response was. Are you speaking for yourself? This is in verse 34. Or did somebody else tell you this? Friends, this is a very important question for Jesus to answer. Because if Pilate was asking on his own initiative, the question would mean this. Are you a political king, a threat to the emperor? The answer to that question was no. If he was asking the question at the instigation of the Jewish leaders, the question would mean this. Are you the Messiah, the King of Israel? And the answer to that is yes. So Pilate, I want to answer your question, but I got to know what you mean by this. Are you asking me if I'm a political king or if I'm a spiritual king? Where did the question come from? Let me know, Pilate, and I'll answer this. But Pilate said, okay, I'm, I'm tired of all this. Look at what he asked there in verse 35. What have you done? Again, more back to that kind of police state interrogation. Tell us your crimes. What have you done? Just tell me it. You know, could you allow your mind just to linger for a moment on Pilate asking Jesus, what have you done? Can you just let your imagination run wild just for a moment? Mine did when I thought of this. Jesus answering back, what have I done? What have I done? Let me tell you what I've done. I have done no sin. I have never once in my life sinned against either God or man. I've healed the sick. I gave the blind sight. I calmed the storm. I walked on the water. I fed the multitude. I defeated demons. And I raised the dead. I trot the truth so clearly and powerfully that the listeners were astonished. I have fearlessly confronted corruption And I poured my life into a few men who are destined in God's plan to turn the world upside down. Or set it right side up, whichever you please. And Pontius Pilate, I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. You want to know what I've done? That's what I've done. Jesus remained silent. 
It wasn't a time for a defense, even though he could have mounted a great one right there. Now verse 36. Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Pilate, you're asking if I'm a king? All right, let me explain something to you about my kingdom. My kingdom, verse 36, is not of this world. Jesus plainly told Pilate that he was a king. No, 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 I'm not a king. Oh, no, I am a king. Pilate, you're looking at a king. You know, you're a Roman governor. I'm a king. But Pilate, let me tell you something about my kingdom. My kingdom is not of this world. It is not a rival political kingdom to Rome. You see, in contrast to the kingdoms of this world, the kingdom of Jesus originates in heaven. That's the sense of that phrase, my kingdom is not of this world. The sense of that phrase is, my kingdom doesn't originate in this world. My kingdom comes from heaven. But also, in contrast to the kingdoms of this world, the kingdom of Jesus has peace for its foundation. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight. But my servants aren't fighting. Now, part of it's because they're lame fighters. Peter could only cut off the guy's ear. But I could dispatch an army of angels if I pleased. I could dispatch angels that could wipe out any of your Roman legions. Oh, my servants number more than just these 12 weak disciples. I have innumerable servants among the starry host. And if I willed it, they would fight. But I do not will it because my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight. Now, Jesus said the same thing again at the end of verse 36. My kingdom is not from here. Now, I wonder, again, if I'm making a movie of this, when Pilate hears the words, my kingdom is not from here, Pilate gives out a sigh of relief. Oh, well, that's good. Your kingdom's not this, then I don't have anything to worry about from you. You see, I'm only worried about earthly kingdoms. I've got nothing to fear from your spiritual kingdom, Jesus. But the Romans, like Pontius Pilate, thought they knew something about kingdoms and their might. They thought they knew that armies and navies and swords and battles measured the strength of kingdoms. But what Jesus knew... Jesus knew that even though his kingdom was not of this world, that it was mightier than any Roman empire. Jesus knew, Pilate, it's not going to be very long till Rome and all its exalted glory is laid low, but my kingdom will continue to expand. My kingdom will get more citizens than Rome has ever, ever had. My kingdom is mightier than yours, even though you dismiss it. Verse 37. Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I've come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? 
And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault in him at all. Pilate's following up in verse 37. Okay, Jesus, you claim to be a king. Let's talk about that a little bit more. You are a king then. I want to make sure that you're not a king that's a rival to Rome. In verse 37, Jesus says, you rightly say that I'm a king. You better believe it, Pilate. I am a king, but I am a king over a kingdom of truth. And in verse 37, he says, I should bear witness to truth. That's what my kingdom is founded upon. Not the sword, but upon truth. Not brute force, but upon integrity and God's eternal word, the truth itself. Pilate cynically responded. You saw it there in verse 8. What is truth? This question showed that he thought that Jesus' claim to be the king of truth was foolish. King of truth, huh? Yeah, how many swords does your kingdom of truth have? How many legions does your kingdom of truth command? You see, probably Pilate did not mean that there was no truth, but that there was no truth in the kind of spiritual kingdom Jesus represented. I'll tell you how Pilate had it figured out. In Pilate's mind, soldiers were truth. Armies were truth. Rome was truth. Caesar was truth. Political power, that was truth. And if you think of that question, what is truth? There's many people in our day who ask that same question. What is truth? But they ask it from a completely different perspective than Pontius Pilate. You see, in our day, we kind of note that there are many kind of things that are based just on personal preference. What is the truth about the best flavor of ice cream? Personal preference even though I could objectively show you that it's Rocky Road. (laughs) But again, there's a lot of things that seem to be true just according to personal preference. Well, we take that aspect and we expand it and we make it seem like all truth is personal. All truth is individual. And so people think that there is no true truth when it comes to God. There's only my truth and your truth. There's no true truth about God. You have your truth. I have my truth. Who cares? Nobody can figure it out. But ladies and gentlemen, that thinking is very strong in our day, but it denies Jesus. Jesus said this, for this cause I was born and for this cause I have come into the world that I should bear witness of the truth. You want to know what the true truth is about spiritual things and God in the age to come? Look to Jesus because he said he had it. Not your truth, my truth. Who cares about your truth or my truth? We look to the one who is truth. And we define truth by him. Well, Notice what Pilate says there at verse 38. I find no fault in him at all. I don't know if you've ever stood before a judge. Some of us have. Look, I know some of your stories. Some of you, it's a little scary what you've stood in front of judges for. Others of you, look, it's been light things, you know, traffic ticket, whatever it would be. But for whatever reason you've stood before a judge, wouldn't you love the judge to say this from the bench? I find no fault in him. What would you say? Thank you very much, judge. I'm out of here. Shouldn't that be what Jesus said? 
Pilate declared not guilty in verse 38. That should be the end of it all. The gavel pounds, the trial's over, you're done. I find no fault in him. But it didn't work out that way. Our last two verses, verses 39 and 4. But you have a custom that I should release someone to you at Passover. Do you therefore want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Then they all cried again saying, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. First of all, notice Pilate's failure of courage. A courageous man who knew right from wrong and was willing to stand for it would say, not guilty, end of the story, he walks. That's what I'm supposed to do as a judge. But a weak man, a man rife with corruption, says, yeah, I know what the truth is, but i got to please the crowd too. And so let's let him go according to this custom that we have of releasing a prisoner at the time of Passover. Now, that's what Pilate wanted to do, but the crowd shouted forth for Barabbas. And in the end, they chose Barabbas over Jesus. Barabbas was guilty of at least three crimes. According to the Gospel of Mark and here in the Gospel of John, we see that he was a thief, he was a robber. We see, secondly, he was a traitor. That's in Mark chapter 15, verse 7. And he was a murderer. He was a thief, a traitor, and a murderer. And they had set up three crosses for that day, and one of them was meant for Barabbas. By the way, when it comes to the idea of a thief, the idea is actually kind of an insurrectionist, someone who, who starts some kind of a, of a, of a um, revolt. That same charge is laid to the two men who are on either side of Jesus. They, too, were accused of the same crime. It was those two guys and Barabbas all together. They were supposed to die that day. Do you understand something? Jesus was on the cross that was meant for Barabbas in a way that none of us um, can, can, can experience just the same way Barabbas did. We can experience in our own way, but not in his way. Jesus died for Barabbas. He died as a substitute for him. He died in his place. Barabbas went free, Jesus died. Jesus was innocent, Barabbas was guilty. Jesus died, the innocent for the guilty, as a substitute for him. Let me just close with this. I am Barabbas. Barabbas was a thief. Have I not robbed God of his glory and his honor? And have I not stolen from him the obedience that's due to him? I am a traitor because a kind and loving king rules over the universe and I have have turned my back on him and said I'll go my own way. And I am a murderer because there have been times when I have hatred in my heart and I wished people were dead. As bad as I may be, Jesus died for someone like Barabbas. Now, so I don't leave it all on me. You are Barabbas. <laughs> and you need to come to a place right now where you say, Jesus, I receive this death that you died for me. I'm going to pray. The worship team will come out. We'll open up the tables for communion. Can we walk with our blessed Lord Jesus on this trail?
as we leave the account here, Pilate still thinks he has a way out of this. Pilate still thinks he can evade the crime of sending this man to the cross. We'll see it resolved next week. Father in heaven, here we are. We collectively in this room, Lord, our history is that we have been just like Barabbas. We've stolen your glory. We've offended your rule. We've murdered others in our heart. But Father, we are here so grateful, so thankful that if you died for Barabbas, you died for us. If you were his substitute, you are our substitute and we want to receive it. And I pray right now, Lord, that we could do it all over again in our heart and we say, Jesus, thank you for dying for me. Thank you for being my substitute. And we pray, Lord, that just as Barabbas had new life from this point on, may we walk in the reality of the new life that you give us in Jesus Christ.